Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep, authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I'm here to support your process and help you get your words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing and the imagination, even as they explore the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists in private practice, who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? Visit my website, marisagowdy.com, to learn more about my writing coaching services and set up a free 30-minute consultation. Season 3, Episode 11, Two Worlds, Two Women, A New Perspective on the Mad Sweeney Story. Our guest for this episode is Lorraine Van Toole, Ph.D., Licensed Clinical Psychologist, Shamanic Eco-Psychologist, and Depth Hypnosis Practitioner. Lorraine has distilled 30 years of diverse, well-rounded professional experiences into an elegant, seamless integration of modern psychological expertise, ancient healing practices, and nature wisdom. She was born and raised in Suriname, the most forest-covered nation in the world, which inspired her unique soul authority, re-nurturing, and re-treating methods. These tools have empowered hundreds of spiritual empaths and transformational leaders in psychology, holistic health, academia, the arts, renewable energy, economics, social justice work, and spiritual entrepreneurship by connecting folks to their innate wisdom and healing powers. Lorraine is the author of Amazon Wisdom Keeper, a psychologist's memoir of spiritual awakening and soul authority, liberatory tools to heal from oppressive patterns and restore trust in your heart compass. Once upon a time, Sweeney, son of Colmar Cor, had been king of Dalary, a kingdom in the northeast of Ireland. Once upon a time, Sweeney had been a warrior. He fought for his people, his territory, and the old ways and old faith they had always practiced. He was fueled by a rage that more than a few would call the opposite of righteous. He attacked a priest. He killed the cleric's novice. He broke every code of honor on the battlefield. And then he rather lost his mind. The angry priest, St. Ronan, leveled a curse upon Sweeney and nothing would ever be the same for the king or for those who loved him. The man who was once king was known as Sweeney Guilt 
as Mad Sweeney. He wandered the entire length and breadth of Ireland for decades, an exile from his throne, his marriage, his entire way of life. Now, this was a time when the line between possible and impossible, the distinction between the laws of nature and the laws of man, were both more clear and more faint than now. When St. Ronan shouted to Sweeney, I will curse you to the trees, bird brain among branches, those words stuck. Sweeney sprouted feathers then and there. Years of wandering and misadventure, of sleeping cold and taking in spectacular sunsets followed. But those days eventually came to an unexpected early end. The conversation we're about to overhear takes place the day after Sweeney's funeral. Oren, his wife, calls over to the woman who simply goes by the mill hag, though a few friends call her Millie. They sit down for one last pint before going their separate ways to live their very different lives. Oren, he's gone. Our Sweeney wanders no more, the hag. Ugh, this conversation isn't going to pass the Bechtel test, is it, little sister? We're going to act as if our lives revolve around men. Again. Still. Oren. Oh, allow me my grief. He's a great man who deserves to be mourned. The hag. Oh, he had greatness in him, sure. But he was also a reckless barbarian a great deal of the time. He played the victim as well as he played soldier and king. Oren. He wasn't playing at madness, I don't think. He lost himself. But then he'd seen such terrible things. Hag, he did such terrible things. Oren, I know, I won't deny it. He never should have killed that boy. Father Ronan's novice, oh, such an innocent. I don't know what got into him. Hag, some might call it the mad frenzy of entitlement and his own singular bloody-mindedness. Oren, enough. Are we here, just gone from the man's funeral to rehearse his sins? If that's all you want to do, I have others with whom to seek comfort. His comrades in arms, the other broken men with whom he sought refuge, the holy brothers who took him in for his final years. Hag, you could seek comfort from your own husband, of course. Oren, yes, so I remarried. Sweeney had been gone for years before I did. I knew he was lost to me and I had to do what I could do to redeem my own life. Hag, ah, you misunderstand me, my pet. I am not throwing stones. I think that choice to find someone else and get on with your life was the wisest thing you ever did. And plus, you're not really the type to go it alone. Oren, I heard that, Mill Hag. Of course you did, my dear. You've got a nice, comfortable life and your ears still work quite well. Me, on the other hand, I'm not sure if it was all the damp or all that sleeping rough nearly my whole life. It might have been that time I tumbled off the cliff and had to hide in the cave by the sea for so long. It might have been a bug that crawled into my ear some Midsummer's Eve. At any rate, my right ear has been useless for as long as I can remember. And call me Millie. We may not have met till just yesterday, but we shared a story for a good long time. Oren. My Sweeney had to endure such hardships in his wildlife. Hag, ugh, you sound so piteous. Sure, didn't you have to endure your share, married to such a man? 
Now tell me, did you want to tell the story from the beginning? The bit where you tried to keep him from murdering the priest and you just ended up catching the hem of his robe while he took off naked and screaming? I know myself that the man had a lovely arse, but I tend to doubt you were thinking of that when you saw him streaking off with homicide on his mind. Oren, that is not the beginning of the story. Our story began with betrothal and marriage and the start of a family. All that came before he was lost to the frigid winds and the rock-hard beds of the life of an exile. Hag, you won't try it, but I'll still invite you not to knock that way of being in the world. Home may be the only haven for you, but it's a fine life there, under the stars, kept company by the stones and streams, the moss for a pillow and the moon for a torchlight, and never a curfew, and always free from the churchman's curses. Oren, what are you talking about? All of his wandering was the result of a religious man's curse. Oh, but it's all in the past. Sweeney has been forgiven. His sins absolved. He died on the right side of God. Hag, oh, come now. Did you really buy all of that pious whinging of his? I did rather love his poetry, but the way he'd switch mid-verse, abandoning his adoration of the glen and plains and spring blossoms to blather on about that almighty father of his, ugh, I found it a bit tiresome, honestly, and I wished he would just stick to the spirits that raised him. Tell me, did you ever buy it, really, his conversion story? Oren, watch it. I myself am a woman of God now. Hag, ugh, yes, you are, aren't you? Many seem to be going that way. I do wonder if it will stick. All that incense, it makes me sneeze, honestly. And Sweetie and I always agreed that the constant clanging of the church bells were a vexation to the spirit. I would take the croaks of the ravens and a good chorus from a murder of crows any day. But really, for you, I see it. You always were St. Ronan's favorite. Do you think it hurt your dear Sweeney's feelings? The way he got Ronan's curse and you got all of Ronan's blessings? Oren, I'd rather not be reminded of that. I never knew how that truly felt for him. I can only imagine it caused him pain. Wait, wait, do you think that's what robbed him of trust in our civilized world? Do you think he felt betrayed? Our Christian God, he does speak of forgiveness. And the first priest he knew was a man given to malediction. Hag, oh, heaven, sister, you are overthinking it. It may seem from this chat, at least, that our world revolves around him. But I can tell you that his world did not revolve around you. Oren, you are unnecessarily cruel sometimes. But I would expect no less from a woman with no connections and no fixed address. I take your point, though. Hag, Sweeney came into this world with some faults, as all men do. They were made all the worse by the power, the crown, the battle-mad culture of the lads who have run the show for generation upon generation. Don't you think the root of his trouble was all that glory for the sword and spear? Don't you think it was all the blood he shed? Don't you think he was driven just as mad by his own guilt as he was by old Ronan's curse? Oren, I can never tell when you're going to blame him or defend him, or when you're going to champion the old ways or the new, Millie. You wreck my head. Honestly, you do. 
Ah, I just want to get home to my own hearth and bake my own bread. Hag, I am on the side of the heron and the doe, the salmon and the hazelnut. Don't try to tie me into the ways of men and their shifting creeds and shifty behavior. Orin, I don't want to talk of this either. We haven't much time left. Tell me, Hag, did Sweeney ever truly fly? Hag, <laughs> see, I knew you weren't just some housefrau all taken up with your own guilt and lamentation. This is something much more wonderful to talk about. I would swear that Sweeney did fly. That curse of Ronan's to spurt feathers and roost with the birds? In my mind, it was the greatest blessing. Ronan thought he was punishing Sweeney, but really, he was returning him to his true element. I envied him. I did. Oren, you know... I think I did too. You know what I said to him once? I said to him, I wish we could fly away together, be rolling stones, birds of a feather. I'd swoop to pleasure you in flight and huddle close on the roost at night. Hag, ah, you fancy yourself the poet too, I see. Ah. Yeah, but you never did fly away with him like I did. You never did figure out the art of pleasuring a man while in flight. Morin. You're flying too close to the sun with that one, Millie. I suppose I am left to assume that you know all about the pleasures my husband enjoyed after you sent away from me. I'm not particularly interested in that detail. Hag, if we're going to speak of the man, why don't we speak of all of him? I never asked him this myself as we were busy with other things. And the poet was vague on this one point. When you did meet him again after seven years of separation, and when you'd already taken up with Gira, did you bring Sweeney back to your bed? Did he take you to his nest? Oh, stop. You don't need to look over your shoulder. Not a man has walked out of that hall since the mead started to flow. We're just two women alone speaking in the sunshine, and your secrets are safe with me. Oren, I wasn't looking over my shoulder. My husband trusts me, and I trust him, and he knows well what Sweeney meant to me. So long ago, when I was just barely done with being a girl. Ugh, but what does any of this matter now? I am several times a grandmother. I loved Sweeney, true, but when he was gone, I was a single woman with children to raise. Being no sovereignty goddess myself, my queenship depended on being wed to a king. And so I became the new king's consort, as was my right as a woman able to bear royal sons. Hag, as was only smart, I never doubted your intelligence, Mavornine, just how you spent it. Oren, high judgments from a lowly mill, Hag. We could say much about how you spent your time, what you've chosen and what you've lost. It was you who was charged with minding Sweeney after his foster brother had healed him. Sweeney was ready to return to his throne, his tribe, his family, and you goaded him back into madness. Hag, I'll take no blame for that. Linshaken's mother-in-law, the old Bessem who usually minded the well, she was away. And then he found me, and assuming that just any older woman would do, he gave me the job. There was no proper interview process. I certainly never consented to being called the mill hag. I'd rather love to be called, oh, the hag of Bera. That's one of my favorite spots. Oh, but the name is taken. 
Hmm, Hag of the Leaps, perhaps? No, no matter. Millie has stuck, and so it is. But, sorry, back to himself, the damn topic we cannot seem to escape. I'm not so sure Sweeney was as healed as you say. Sweeney was just carrying on, playing the victim again, still, and I wanted to cheer him up, get his old spirit back. Oren, or his old wild madness, you mean. Hag, semantics, my dear. He and I, we had great times for a while. He didn't seem to have any regrets or complaints. I could leap the plains as well as he could and keep up with him in every way. But the second he caught sight of some old ghost from the battlefield, some old soldier he knew from the bad old days, ugh, he was back to his soppy watercress laments. Oren, I heard he spouted poetry in honor of every tree in Ireland. Was it lovely? Hag, ugh, there was some lovely verse thrown in, sure, but it wasn't anything compared to clearing an old oak forest in a single bound. Oren, hmm. Yeah, you make it all sound so sporting. But I wonder, did he tire of your company and push you off that cliff at Dunseverick? Or were you less of an able leaper than they say? Hag, the account of my death is greatly exaggerated. I took a tumble off a cliff, yes, but we just finished a very complicated game of hopscotch at the Giant's Causeway, and I had stubbed a toe. The greatest tragedy is that my great bounding days were just about done after that. Like I said, whether it was the falling or the hiding out in the cave to escape Sweeney and all his mad laughter at my plight, my ear has never been the same since. Maybe it wrecked my sense of, uh, what's, what's it, uh, my equilibrium. Well, never mind. You're not concerned for my sense of balance or my inner peace. I know. Back to the man of the hour. Back to the corpse in the churchyard. He was a ride, that old husband of yours. But he was a right bollocks, too. I'd had enough of him, honestly. Hiding out as he looked for me might have done my ear in, but it gave me what I wanted, a chance to go and have my own adventures, gloriously Sweeney free. My leaping days done, I got myself a wee boat. I sailed over and taught Skahach and the rest of her warrior women a few things. Then I took a nice long trip to the Western Isles. I highly recommend a tour of Tirnaman in the spring. The pink flowers and the gentle breezes and the company... Ugh, in so many ways, I didn't miss the bollocks. Oren, sounds dull enough to me. Hag, ah, you always were a father's daughter. Or are you a bit like our Maeve, never having one man without another in his shadow? You're a bit less independent than she, I would say, however. Oren, what do you know? I did turn a man away. I turned Sweeney away. God forgive me. I told him he was an embarrassment. Hag because he was, my dear. Oren, an embarrassment or a man wild and free? Which is it you prefer, hag? Hag, let a man know and choose his own nature. Be it at court or atop a tree, the straddling of the worlds is not the mark of a man. Oren, it's the mark of the poet and the druid, though. Aren't they men? Hag, oh, sure. And some are good men, too. But Sweeney was a soldier king and then a wandering poet of the wild. It was the sad hinterlands in between, the neither here nor there, neither one nor the other. That's where he was lost for us both. Oren, I still think you're cruel, except for when you're kind. Hag, I still think you're soft, except for when you're firm. Oren, 
It's still a pity beyond pity the way he died. Hag, certainly all wrapped up in the cassock of a priest, his poetry all convoluted by prayer, all cooped up in that narrow stone church rather than soaring to the next horizon. Orin, no, no, he died because of the harsh lash of a woman's tongue. That lie that said he had lain with another man's wife, it led to his murder. Hag, ugh, that. Well, perhaps that's, um, what's it called? Karma. He died speaking ill of you and me and said enough to slag off womankind throughout his lifetime, when he wasn't looking for a gentle feminine hand, that is. Orin, enough. Can't it be enough to say that we loved him? I loved the husband and the king. You loved the man who saw every inch of this island, free as a bird. For all that this same man was tortured and twisted in time, he was Ireland to me. Hag, I'll raise a glass to that. To Sweeney, mad for him we were. Shanae, that's my story. Lorraine, thank you so much for sitting with me. That was gorgeous. I mean, talk about encapsulating humanity's struggle on earth. And I felt it like captured right there in between heaven and hell Mm -hmm. and this whole Christian sort of context and who's really top dog and who's underdog here. And this power struggle, and it was just so rich with symbolism. Mm-hmm. I feel like we could really unpack it. Well, of course, the goal of myth work is to get everyone listening to then start off on their own next quest, right? And then start wondering, because this story in particular, like, who do you believe? This is just, to me, it was it was so much fun to write it because it yeah. was just one unreliable narrator piled atop another based on a poem written by Seamus Heaney in the 1970s based on a medieval document that was translated from the old Irish based on all these other stories that would have come before. Like it's that interweaving and interlayering that, as you were saying, makes everything so rich. Yeah. And I wasn't even thinking of them as unreliable narrators. I was like, I can relate to all of them, you know, that complexity. (laughs) It's all different perspectives. And you you did a great job really capturing those characters and those women and their perspectives too. Mm. Yeah, I have two pages of notes, just like this, <laughs> you know, so many beautiful things straddling the world and and it feeling so ancient and out there and so relevant and concrete and applicable to all that I do these days. <laughs> Every day, several times a day with clients and students. So mm-hmm. it's a really good one here. Yeah. Well, I knew you were the woman that I had to explore this story with and that we could just speak at it from so many different angles. But why don't we start with this idea of grief? Because Mm -hmm. I know that was one of the first themes that came up for you when you were reading it and that conversations you and I have had in the past, just thinking about love affairs and connections to those in the past and, and how those all interweave. But these are two women who are united in a moment of grief and I think are really showing the very different ways we tend to respond to losing someone. And I think certainly in some ways I know as writing, I'm like, oh, I've been Orin and I've also been the hag. Like I know how to be in that sense of such loss and wanting to go back to the romance and the tenderness and Mm -hmm. also 
looking at it with a pretty salty side-eyed perspective and trying to bring it all down to the earth in certain ways too. Yeah, there are so many lenses to unpack even that grief mm-hmm. with, and we talked about that. But the one that is now coming to mind, actually, and um, introducing this one as a clinical psychologist and people into psychotherapy attachment is is a big one, right? Mm-hmm. So from that lens of attachment, I'm also thinking of Gabor Mate, who is a psychiatrist, and I, I love his work. And he says the struggle that many humans have these days is there's no way to be safely attached and also be authentically ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of trauma around attachment. And there's a lot of things that we do to face that or not face that. One of them is dissociation and one of them is like escaping into fantasy and doing all kinds of things with these trauma bonds. Mm. Now, most of us are not lucky enough to transcend these unhealthy attachments. And so we can have grief and most of the grief is around these imperfect attachments, right? Mm. And these trauma bonds. So I see Oren as grieving a lot, but in this complicated way where it's not just even these maybe idealized and romanticized attachments that she had to Sweeney, but it's more complicated, right? She's a father's daughter who knows how many generations, patriarchy and and the way she learned to attach. So she is grieving the loss of that, as we all do, no matter how unhealthy or patriarchal some of our attachments are, we will grieve those attachments. And then I feel like the hag, she's more of the wild one, the shapeshifter transcending some of that, being independent, being the rebel and free. So not so attached, more attached to herself, independent, but also recognizing Sweeney's also attachments and struggles with that, trying to find his way. And also, of course, in that authentic attachment to the self, there's a lot hinted at is that connection to our true nature, to nature, the spiritual connection, or to man, to religion, to God, to right? So there's just so much complexity. And so grief could be all of those things. Things we long for, things we've been conditioned to appreciate in our relationships, but things that transcend that and go deeper and are deeper longing for that deeper connection. And who do you trust? Where do you find it? What's the light? Who's the authority on that, right? In terms of light, love, is it nature? But nature could also be so cruel and and our true nature and humanity. So it's all like, it's everything, this story. It's just so great. Oh, thank you. Well, I have to just loop back. We'll leap back. Let's, in using the language of the story, we'll leap back. I love that you mentioned Gabor Mate's work because now you probably, maybe you are, we probably aren't aware of the fact that Gabor Mate's done a fair bit of work thinking about Ireland's culture and thinking about Ireland as having experienced such collective cultural trauma across the generations in so many different ways at the hands of the church, at the hands of because of the famine, because of all the different responses people have had to it after centuries, millennia of colonization. And those who come to listening to Not Work Storytelling because they have connections to Ireland may know about the trailblazery and Kathy Scott's work. She's Mm. very fascinated by looking at collective 
cultural trauma in a lot mm. of ways in our our loss of the language, our, the loss mm-hmm. of connection to the land itself. And mm. she also talks a lot about post-traumatic growth and all of the importance around that. But I just love that you're inviting us to look at this through the attachments, the failed attachments, all the ways in which they're yearning for that connection to themselves, to one another in an authentic kind of sisterhood. I don't get the impression that either of these women has spent a lot of other time with women, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's that yearning for, for sisterhood. And that whole feeling is so baked into the land of Ireland itself. And though for me, 3,000 miles away and separated by generations from that space, it would be my dream that I sort of transmit that sort of pain in order to help bring these conversations to the fore for healing. Because of course, someone like Gabor Mate, well, he's, he's Hungarian, right? So he has such a global perspective that just gets to the core of human nature and all the ways that all of these pains mm-hmm. transcend individual cultures, transcend individual communities and certainly ethnicities, but yet also speak to saying, right, sometimes our pain comes from our lineage and our ancestral line. And then there are also these deeply shared universal experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was also thinking maybe these women, even if they had connections to other women, it seems like being so conditioned to focus on men and their needs and neglecting themselves and I love, I did not know about Gabor Mate's work and his interest in Ireland, but it makes so much sense. It's so layered in terms of those attachments and how historical, ancestral it is. And of course, it's not just in Ireland, or you can also see Ireland as maybe the old country and colonizers and and what happens in the U.S. Mm -hmm. People already, new immigrants coming with so much trauma already in their cells and bones and how that then gets transmitted here and expressed. And that is, of course, in other countries too, whether they're the newer colonies or sort of coming from the old land. And But this, there's so much universal and so much specific. I was definitely thinking about sort of this idea. I mean, we say fatherland, we say motherland, but I don't know, there's some mother, maybe because my main guide is a a leatherback sea turtle and she really does lay her eggs in the land, (laughs) on the beach, that I tend to think of the land very womb-like, mother-like, and just finding home and finding those roots back and also healing that. I do a lot of ancestral work also, working with both lines the son and and sort of more indigenous Native American, but father being father son and then mother all the way to that ball of fire, Mother Earth, and mm-hmm. inviting all the ancestors to line up from the oldest to the very ancient lights and that fire and just inviting them in to clear all these misaligned connections that got us so confused. Mm. Oh, Lorraine, I just love it when you speak mystic and psychologist and wisdom keeper and indigenous mother of the earth all in the same set of phrases. It just is why I adore you and your work so much. Well, likewise, (laughs) we're sisters from different mothers, but one mother earth, right? Yes. Yeah. 
So Lorraine, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show was that you come from a very unique set of backgrounds. You have a very, really a spectrum of both sources of wisdom and guides and guidance. So could you just tell us a bit more about yourself and how you move through the world as mystic, as teacher, as psychologist, as author, and knowing that I'm asking you the tremendous question of please tell me everything about your entire life. But we're in this space right now of expansiveness offered and held for us by the story, but also just by you and me as healers, creatives, as folks who are just looking at the universe with this expansive lens. Can you help people understand where it is that you are standing, how you're rooted in? Hmm. I have done a lot of thinking and reflection on that, and I'll give you the short Cliff Notes version. <laughs> I believe that I was born in Suriname in a very multicultural society, and it's Suriname used to be Dutch Guiana, right above Brazil, and I think it really set me up for all of that. And I ended up doing my dissertation. I moved to the U.S. At, at 13, not really appreciating my background. And I did my dissertation on my multiracial identity, but it was actually also multi-spiritual and mostly wanting to understand why it was so much easier for me to be Chinese, Black, African from slaves being brought over, one of my ancestors, and also Dutch with Jewish ancestry all the way from Portugal. So why was it so much easier for me to hold all these identities and fluidly switch from one to the other, not just culturally, but also in regard to more earth-based and wisdom kind of traditions, all the way to Catholicism, all the way to all the different traditions and religions that were and are practiced there. So my dissertation really focused on our ego mind and our tendency to really split things and think of things as either or and that having Eurocentric roots. Mm -hmm. And so that really, and, and Judeo-Christian, that really made me think of your story too, like this idea of like rigid, good, bad, heaven, hell, and how... American culture, North American culture is also sandwiched in between that and maybe not even realizing we can think of black, white and all that biracial struggle as just racism. And, and yes, there is an aspect to that, but there is a bigger, more overarching spiritual aspect, a lack of equanimity, lack of this yin-yang kind of holistic thinking that is enveloping that. So, my ability to do all those things, I think, is because I lived in this environment where this kind of yin-yang, complex, layered, and fluid thinking is much more prominent. And that what's all the, that was the norm, the cultural norm. So for me, it was more of an adjustment to why is there so much either or and dualistic polarizations when that feels so unnatural. Mm. So my healing is actually activating this kind of complex and holistic and equanimous thinking in many of my clients, connecting them back to nature, to the elements, to the seasons, to a tree that represents above and below and doing all of that where what is considered paradox actually in the body doesn't feel like paradox. 
and you know your limits. It's not that you try to be everything and, uh, you know, you know your own story, your own mission, and the boundaries are around what fits in a 24-hour day and just following the breadcrumbs and going from here to there. So, yeah, not the boundaries in terms of what I'm called to do, whether it's writing or healing or being in the modern world or ancient mythology, it's what presents itself or what I feel called to and how many hours, <laughs> how many things I can fit in a given day. <laughs> the ways in which you can be Orin running the home and, and maintaining the household and how much you can be the wild hag running out and chasing the sunsets, right? Well, it's interesting. When I was a clinical psychologist student, it really felt like some, you know, that was 25, 30 years ago. So it was very traditional, very research-based, and it was just new still introducing mindfulness meditations, existential psychology, some of these spiritual ideas. And I felt like they were introduced and practiced more as a side dish. So when you think of John Kabat-Zinn, I went to one of his talks and he he said Many people in the U.S., they try to wrap thought around awareness. While that's impossible, awareness wraps around thought. Mm -hmm. So it felt that those ideas that would help us become more conscious, more aware, were subsets, were side dishes, and that the dominant way of doing psychotherapy was still very much driven and informed by thought, by ego mind, by this either or thinking, by this linear kind of, we have a goal and an objective, and this is good, and this is the marriage want to save, and this is the job, rather than maybe the marriage needs to bust, and maybe, right? So, I had a lot of trouble in my clinical psychology program because of that, and I had my spontaneous shamanic initiation. So what I meant to say with Oren at home and the hag outside the home, I don't quite experience it like that because mm. sometimes it can feel very piecemeal, like, oh, now we're this role, now we're that role. While I see myself more as what is the overarching reality, what's mm. the mystery? And so there's an Oren part, but the Oren really needs to be a subset of the bigger. Mm -hmm. So it's never a true Oren. Mm -hmm. You know, my kids know the hag. <laughs> I can be very Oren sweet, but they, they they know the hag that lives in there too, right? Yeah. So it's Oren is gets sliced and molded to fit in this bigger container mm -hmm. and it's aligned. So all these other parts are aligned with the highest truth. It's mm -hmm. not like, oh, taking turns and right. this is a paradox and we can do either or. It, right. it really fluidly all works together. As you're sitting with this story and what came through, what elements are you most aware of? And perhaps what imbalances and or who might yeah. embody different traits? Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about this. This is relevant to all the work that I do today mm -hmm. because, and the work that I do today is often associated with what happened to us ancestrally, mm -hmm. which I feel like it's mostly an imbalance in fire. Mm -hmm. And I call it disrespect, violation of boundaries that has mm -hmm. been happening for many generations or especially to with the, the influx, the, the coming of patriarchal and religious influences, authoritarian and people in charge politically and whatnot, telling us what's good and bad and what we can do. So mm -hmm. it created a lot of oppression for women, for minorities, for religious minorities. 
And what then happens is this implosion of energy and then an explosion. So the implosion could be all the feelings related to shame and guilt and not worthy and this and that. And the explosion could be violence. Implosion could be violent too, of course, where you harm yourself and suicide. But explosion and all the workaholism or alcoholism or all the ways we act out, scapegoat, harm others. Mm -hmm. So I was really thinking of this story as this man already from the get-go struggling with an implosion explosion pattern where they're talking about him also being a victim but then mm -hmm. this warrior king and being in so what for many of us needs to happen is this healing and i associate the healing the the healthy relationship to our fire as a fever mm -hmm. where our body for the most part we have a lot of inflammation problems but for the most part our fever still works when we feel attacked by pathogens we are T cells want to fight and push that out. And we are not interested in being hot and feverish forever. We want to get back to homeostasis and balance and feel like our boundaries are respected and things are restored. Well, for most of us, we can't do that. And so we are in this in-between, between these worlds and struggling where part of us wants to do that, part of us is restored, and then the forces come from that outside world again. Mm -hmm. So when I work with people, I actually do a lot of work around first with air, seeing the big picture, the long view, what's happening, then restoring those boundaries with fire. Once you're really clear what you want to do and you have that passion and that resourcing back with sun and the ball of fire from the earth supporting you, then you're able to set those boundaries and take the alchemy action steps and build the foundation again and root and, and ground yourself, stand your ground, and then water will flow in mm -hmm. the way it's designed to and be regulated. So that's how I saw that story. A lot of disruption also around fire that's still relevant in yeah many people's lives. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And I just love how in that encapsulation of how you work with people, air, fire, earth, water, and I know you've shared with me an image that kind of encapsulates some of those mm -hmm. ideas that I will definitely be sharing with our notes so people can kind of to visualize this and just, you know, knowing that there's a lot of different ideas that we're blowing across and burning through and rooting ourselves in and drowning in all at the same time. But there's so much beauty in getting thrown in the deep end, I guess, and picking one element and seeing what resonates, what emerges, what people hold. Yeah. And that whole idea, yeah, where is our fire imbalanced? Where is it cultural? Where is it personal? How we are suffering from it and how we're potentially pushing it off on others and causing them to burn in our presence. Yeah, for sure. And the tree that we first sit with to help organize it, because it can get so overwhelming. And that's why I designed it, hoping that most people can connect to nature as the source, as, as a spiritual source. So the tree helps us really with that dualism that is kind of a curse. We, we talked about our, in the story, it's Ronan's curse, but yeah. I've done a lot of spiritual work. I feel like this dualism for many years is this curse that we're all struggling with, this good you know, bad, evil, success, failure, um, seen, unseen, mystery, spirit, and matter, and and money, and spirit. I mean, goes on and on. Heaven, hell. So yeah. if we bring those two forces together, just like the top of the tree and the bottom of the tree, they need to both grow, and they're 
both supporting, even though they're moving in opposite directions, they're both supporting our heart center and our wholeness. Mm-hmm. So for us to grasp that, that I think is half the battle. And then within that realm, working with the elements and balancing and harmonizing all of that out, it can be a very embodied experience too, which is important. Yeah. Another paradox, it's not something out there and something in the envision, but you feel it and and that starts then really clicking. So it's a bottom-up approach for sure, instead of many, you know, working from the top down and from the heady level. Well, Lorraine, I hadn't realized the synchronicity, but of course, part, you know, there's a line in the story which said, didn't he write a poem about the trees? Like the tree itself is so sacred in the in the Irish tradition, in the Celtic tradition, and the sense that so much of the original poem, the story's drawn from, is really an ode, an homage to the sacred groves, to the trees. And it seems more than perfect that that's where we should land with this conversation, really rooting in and reaching up. And of course, you can't help but think about the way we know that trees are connected root to root under the earth, Yeah, even as they blow together in the wind. And I certainly have always felt with you. So, wow, what a remarkable place. Yeah. And every land, everywhere there are trees. So that's where we're all connected on a spiritual level and to make it personal what I call this practice, which you're going to share with this sanctuary, I call it retreating, but tree spelled Mm T-R-E-E, saying that we need to regularly retreat and connect Mm -hmm. for us to clearly what's happening all around us. Wow. Oh, Lorraine. I mean, this is hopefully the first of many visits you'll make to Mountwork Storytelling because this has been such a remarkable chance to explore with you. And I certainly know it's just the beginning of so many other stories. So Thank you. Um, no, it's been an honor and so delightful. So intimate talking to you. I, I forgot we're on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that folks are going to follow along with us. Hopefully we left with as many questions and curiosities because that's what I want to offer on this show. I'm not, you know, it's not about quick and easy tips and let's let's get this yeah. done. Myth work is about sitting with the difficult, the obscure, the contradictory. and really having the courage, the willingness, the good fire to keep exploring. So will you tell our listeners a bit more about where they can find you and more about your work? Yes, they can go to the Sacred Healing Well, and I have a super empath academy. I really focus on empaths, spiritual empaths, and help them really get into their power. And so they can download all kinds of goodies, freebies, learning how to retreat. There's a little quiz to find out if they are empaths. And there's also what I call a renewable energy power grid where they can learn about the elements, what I just talked about in the tree. And it's a little, almost like a Enneagram, little diagram that they can post on their refrigerator and their, my books and courses and all kinds of retreats and things that are happening. Oh, wonderful. I will link to all of that. And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for sitting with me for this story and this beautiful, wide-reaching conversation. No, thank you for all the work that you do. And it was fireworks. It's always so fun talking to you. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. 
please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub. Myth is medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.